QM AM Toronto is TSN 1050, an iHeart radio station and the voice of Toronto sports. I'm Tristan Fitzpatrick with a TSN 1050 Sports Center update for WestJet. Before your next meeting in Ottawa, remember WestJet can take you from Queen's Park to Parliament Hill 85 times a week. Book your next business trip at WestJet.com. Toronto FC have the Canadian Championship first leg of the final tonight. Head coach Greg Vanny believes defense is the key. Ever since, you know, as our group has really kind of focused on not conceding goals, uh, and being a little bit better and more solid as a collective unit uh, defensively, then you know good things happen for us. TFC are on a five-game unbeaten run. Listen live here on TSN 1050. Toronto FC, Vancouver Whitecaps, Canadian Championship Final first leg tonight at 10. The Blue Jays will go to Mike Hostile tonight on the mound in Game 2 against the Red Sox. Coming up, NHL statistical analyst Mike Kelly will join Toronto today with Steve Simmons on TSN 1050, the voice of Toronto sports. This is Toronto Today on TSN 1050. The greatest moments in history are now up to you. This is TSN 1050's Sound Wars. Welcome back to Toronto Today. Time for a final four Sound Wars battle. This is when I play announcer for a minute. Representing the Jerry Conference, it's seed number three, Jerry's poem for Shirelli. Mr. Peter Shirelli in Edmonton, I have a poem for you. It goes something like this. Peter, Peter, pumpkin eater, you're not winning the lottery. And if by some miracle it happens, I'll personally rip that franchise out of Edmonton and ship it off to the worst city on earth. That's right, Winnipeg. You might have a second team starting next season. I'm not so sure why we need a competition here. I think this is your winner. It's going to be the winner eventually. Uh, How you can vote for anything else is beyond me. But representing the Oh My Goodness Conference, it's seed number seven. Marley's win the Calder Cup. Ben Smith across the line takes the eight, fifteen into the city, taking care of business. Ben Smith makes it five-one. On your feet, Rico. On your feet, Toronto. This is the Calder Cup. This is your Calder Cup. It is the AHL, by the way. We just want to point that out for a second, although I did like the BTO reference, the 815 into the city. Um, Go to tsn1050.ca Click on Sound Wars Vote for your favorite Jerry's poem for Shirelli or Marley's win the Calder Cup with all the BTO references. Voting for this Sound War closes tomorrow at 8am. Listen to Landsberg in the morning for the winner and for the start of the second Final Four Sound Wars battle on TSN 1050. It'll have to happen without me here. I'm here today. I was here yesterday. I'm on with Brian Hayes, I guess, uh, tomorrow and Thursday and Friday. But uh, someone else will be in this chair the rest of the week. And uh, I'm sure they'll be more polished than some people who are in this chair right now. You know, when you put newspaper people here, we do our best. And thank you for listening. There's going to be some people today who will talk about the Raptors being snubbed 
by the NBA and by American television. And by snubbed, I mean they are not getting an invitation to play on Christmas Day on national TV in the United States. And under most circumstances, some people are going to say that this is a shot at the Raptors and that this is a, a lack of respect for the franchise. And especially now with Kawhi Leonard coming to town, it's an insult. People will say that. I won't. The way I look at it, this is business, folks. This is pragmatism at its finest. ABC, ESPN, they're putting on the games that will sell nationally in the United States. And by sell, it's a question of who's watching, how many people are watching, how many people are tuned in on those ratings matter, ratings win. So here's what happens. Here we are in this enormous city of Toronto with all of our rain, and and we play in the NBA, and we have a franchise in the NBA. But guess what doesn't happen? When we watched the Raptors play, it doesn't register on American television ratings. It doesn't move the needle at all. It comes up as a zero. So nobody wants to put Raptor games on national TV, just as when the Blue Jays were in the playoffs, they were getting all of the bad times for their baseball game for the very same reason. It's about maximizing audience and maximizing revenue. And in this case, the Raptors don't bring anything but a game of interest to the NBA. They don't bring real audience. And so therefore, on Christmas Day... You're going to see the usual suspects, Golden State and Cleveland. Not Maybe not Cleveland anymore, the Lakers. Those kind of teams will be on. Even Portland and Utah are playing. And not exactly uh, a marquee matchup of any kind. But Portland, an American city. And Utah, American state. Um, Salt Lake City is the city. Uh, they bring numbers. The numbers may not be large. They may not be enormous but they move the needle a little bit. So if you put Toronto and San Antonio on Christmas Day, which some people were kind of hoping for, because it's a, that's a big day in the NBA, and it's kind of the day they kick off for, you know, sort of their television coverage, so to speak, from there to the end of the season, is this is when the league really begins, Christmas Day on, on American television. And... Some people thought there would be the Raptors and San Antonio because DeMar DeRozan is now in San Antonio and Kawhi Leonard is now um, you know, a Raptor. Now, that would have made sense for one of the Canadian networks to push for if they could have had that and they could have put it on, assuming it's not opposite something they already have programmed. That would have made some sense. But for an American network... San Antonio is a relatively small television network, as great as the franchise has been. Toronto is a non-existent television network. So you can understand why ABC or ESPN or whomever else is televising games on Christmas Day wouldn't want to be in that situation. It's just there isn't enough there there, so to speak, to to look at it from, uh, from point of view of... Selling 
And this is what this is about. This isn't a slap at the Raptors. Masai Ujiri might play it that way. Masai Ujiri, oh, we've been insulted once again. You know, they like to play that nobody loves us card. But they know better. They know what matters here. They know how it works. It's all about numbers, ratings, selling advertising. How do you go about that? If ABC can take Portland and Utah and believe that it can sell more, be shown to more people than the zero Toronto gets and for whatever the San Antonio market would show nationally, they believe Portland and Utah would be larger. And in that, I can't disagree, and I'm not going to sit here and whine that Toronto is getting the short shift once again. Uh, we live in a different country, folks. We are not in the United States of America. Our numbers don't register on their ratings. And if you want to know why, more than any other reason, not because there's no owner, not because there's no stadium, the reason there is no Toronto in the National Football League right now is because Toronto numbers don't register on American television. If they did, then Toronto would have been in the NFL before they moved back to Houston and before they put a second team in Cleveland and before they expanded to Tennessee and before all those things happened um, because the city makes sense and the size of the city makes sense and the audience makes sense and the, the, num- and the amount of money you can make selling things and selling tickets makes sense locally. But the NFL is all about television as most pro leagues, but more than any other league, the NFL is all about television. And that's, I I remember having a conversation years ago with Pat Bolin, who was the owner of the, still is the owner of the Denver Broncos, although he's not well and not well enough to control the team any longer. Um, Pat Bolin's a guy, interesting man. He's from Edmonton and loved the CFL and was very much at the time against there be any interest in the NFL in Toronto because he didn't like what it would do for the, uh, for the CFL. Um, but he told me if until they changed the laws of cable in Canada and the United States and until there was freedom of exchange of advertising so that American advertising could get into Canada and Canadian ratings could get into the United States, he said it's never going to happen. It doesn't make sense. And his line to me, if I can paraphrase from years ago, was um, something along the lines of, there's not enough money for us to make to bring Toronto into the league. There wasn't enough money to make it worthwhile. And even uh, the last attempt, I guess, was to, to purchase the Buffalo Bills, which John Bon Jovi and Larry Tannenbaum and some other people tried to do and tried to, to claim that because Toronto had become part of the Bills' territory, you know, they were going to be part of you know, b- being able to buy the team and eventually move them. It didn't happen. Um, the only thing that possibly should have or could have happened at the time, one of the bidders for the Bills was Donald Trump. And if you think about it now, big picture, if Donald Trump had purchased the Buffalo Bills instead of the Pagulas, um, he may not be president of the United States right now. And that may not be such a bad thing. And it may be worse for the NFL and better for America. Bigger picture. That's my little bit of political slam or jam today. Um, just to go over a few things, we talked Blue Jays in the previous hour, and I just wanted to reiterate what what 
I went through last night personally. I, I presume a bunch of people have stories to tell because I saw I saw the story with the water in the elevator that was jammed, and it looked like an episode from a horror movie. Frankly, you know the the elevator is stalled in Toronto, and water from rain is leaking in, and it's going higher and higher as people are standing in the elevator, caught. You know, it's one of those scenes where you know it had to be frightening for the people involved. Well, I'm not saying it was frightening for for someone like me, but when I walked out of the Rogers Center last night after the Jays game, I've been going to sporting events in this city since the mid-60s. I have never seen a scene like last night. I've never seen rain like that. I've never seen uh, the streets that um, crazy, maybe a little bit from snow at different times. But when I walked to to where my car was parked... And you had to cross uh, Lakeshore Boulevard. And Lakeshore Boulevard should have been Lake Boulevard because it was like a lake. And the, the, the water was up to, um, up to about my knees in, in crossing. And it was like one of those scenes you've seen on television when, when there's flooding in the U.S. And, and the CNN guys are standing out there watching the hurricanes and blowing in the wind. Um, and all of a sudden at the stoplight, everyone starts talking to each other. And people are holding hands that don't even know each other to help walk across this. And some people are taking off their shoes. And it was a crazy, crazy scene. And then I got to my car and I thought, well, at least I'm in my car now. And I start to drive home the way I would normally drive home and to get on the Don Valley Parkway. And it's blocked off. So then I go further uh, east on Lakeshore Boulevard and more things are blocked off. And thankfully... I have an app called Waze that a lot of people are using these days, and it, uh, it took me from parts of the city I'm not all that familiar with through a bunch of streets I'm not all that familiar with to get me home last night, and thankful for that. But honestly, I've never seen anything like it before. I've never, I've never seen a flood like that on the streets of Toronto before. I've never seen water that high. Uh, and when you were driving, there was times when a truck would go by or a car would go by and your entire car would be basically enveloped by water and you couldn't see a thing, not anything. It was just like a big bucket of water had been poured on you. Instead of being poured on your head, it was poured on your car and you couldn't see uh, an ounce or an inch in front of you and you don't know whether to stop because you don't want someone to bash into you from behind and you don't know whether to keep going because you can't see what's in front of you. And so you don't really know what to do. Nobody teaches you what to do in a circumstance like that. So you just do what you can do and thankfully made it home safely. And I hope lots of other people had the same thing happen to them last night. Um, Everybody's safe. But it was a night unlike any other I'd frankly seen before in in all the years I've been around this city. And and I've been around the city a very long time. In the next segment, we're going to talk some Maple Leafs. Mike Kelly's going to join us. I don't know if you're familiar with Mike Kelly, but if you're not, you should be. Mike Kelly is an NHL statistic, statistical analyst, and he works for a number of different teams, and he works with teams, and he works with statistical organizations to break down. It's not just analytics per se. It's a much more technical look at how hockey works and what makes you successful, and what teams are doing, and what they need to do, and how do you create offense, and what works best, and where do you score from, and where are most of the goals scored, and who gets there, and how do you get there. Well, the Maple Leafs, obviously now with John Tavares, 
are going to be an interesting study. And as, as I said in the first hour, and I, I don't know if you feel this way, and I suspect you do, you can't wait for October. Like, I'm so looking forward to the drop of the puck in October. I'm so looking forward to the start of the NBA season with this new Raptors team. I just want to see what they are. And, and very different, obviously, with, with Nick Nurse and a new coach and with Kawhi Leonard coming in, you know, completely different kind of player than DeMar DeRozan was and a whole new view of the Raptors, so to speak, and a whole new view of the Maple Leafs. We thought the Maple Leafs with Austin Matthews on one line and Mitch Marner on another line with Nazem Kadri and, and that kind of one-two punch was pretty su- sufficient to be at the top of the NHL. Now add John Tavares to that. And I don't know if you saw the list that uh, the NHL Network put out the other day. They rated the top 20 centers in the NHL uh, on, um, on the NHL Network. And I think they had Austin Matthews 4, which I thought it was actually a touch high at this point. And they had Tavares around 10. So Leafs have two of, by NHL Network standards, two of the top 10 centers in the NHL. I, I did a similar list for myself, basically, for the Sunday column I write uh, a few weeks back where I broke the NHL down into the top 20 centers as well, and I had Matthews and Tavares in the, in the top 10 as well. That gives, And I don't think any other team other than Pittsburgh... I think Pittsburgh is the only team, two-time Stanley Cup champions of the recent, of this recent team, three-time. If you look at you know the history of of Sidney Crosby and of Getty Malkin, but other than Crosby and Malkin, you look around the NHL as a one-two. The Leafs, you know, have now Tavares and Matthews, Matthews and Tavares. Now as a one-two-three, when you add Nazem Kadri to that equation, who can match that? Like, what teams in the NHL will be able to match that? Um, Pittsburgh can't, even though they have a very good one and two. Washington had a great run to the Stanley Cup final with Kuznetsov and Backstrom and Lars Eller, who combined for 73 playoff points in the postseason. And that was, that was really impressive. Um, and so you, you look through how all that works, and you get some really interesting matchup possibilities and some really interesting views going forward. We're going to take a break now. Come back with Mike Kelly. Talk some Maple Leaf hockey. Uh, Steve Simmons here today on Toronto Today. There's a Sound Wars Final Four battle going on right now. Peter, Peter, pumpkin eater. You're not winning the lottery. Versus this is your Calder Cup. Go to tsn1050.ca to vote for your favorite. Welcome back to Toronto Today. Steve Simmons in for Gareth Wheeler this morning. And it's sports radio in Toronto, which means it's mandatory. We talk Maple Leafs, which I could talk 365 days of the year, but not everybody wants to talk hockey every single day and every single segment, although I could do that, frankly, if need be. One of the people I love to talk hockey with because I learned something from him every time I speak to him or hear him. And those are the people, frankly, I like listening to or conversing with the most because you can sit back and and learn something from every conversation. And happy to have Mike Kelly, NHL statistical analyst, join me here today. Good morning, Mike. 
How are you, Steve? Thanks uh, for having me on. And you want to talk hockey with somebody in the middle of August who loves talking hockey anytime, then I'm the guy for sure. So I, I was saying a little earlier in the show that not very often in the middle of August do I really want it to be the middle of October. Mm-hmm. But the way Toronto is right now, with this new Leaf team, with John Tavares, with everything going on, I can't wait for hockey to start. I can't wait to see what we're going to see. What are the challenges for Mike Babcock from your perspective? That's a great question. And uh, it's kind of one of those questions, I think, that you, you, you're happy to have the problems that he has. You, you've got so much talent on this team. Uh, you bring John Tavares into the mix, um, and it really obviously affects uh, you know who you're going to put on the first line, who you're going to put on the second line. Are there even going to be first and second lines, or is it a 1A, 1B, even ice time situation? Um, you know, what's fascinating to me and what I, I think in terms of challenges for Mike Babcock is going to be the power play. You look at the, the power play last season and Mitch Marner's group, you know, one of the things that I've done in the offseason is, is break down power plays, not just by the team percentage, but by how effective each five-man unit in the NHL was. And of the most used five-man units in the NHL last season, the Mitch Marder group was the most effective. They scored the most goals for 20 minutes of ice time. They were the most effective power play group in the NHL. Now, two of those players, Tyler Bozak and James Van Riemsdyk, are no longer on that unit. So what's the power play going to look like going into this season where you've got Austin Matthews, who no doubt wants a bigger role, um, and John Tavares as well is, is an incredibly gifted player uh, and effective on the power play. But a lot of those goals went through JVR. He scored 10 of the 27 goals that five-man unit scored. And the Maple Leafs don't have that same net front type player. There aren't that many in the league. So it's not to say that it can't be as effective. It's just going to be different. And that's one of the, one of the big challenges I think Mike Babcock will face. Can you turn Austin Matthews into that front of net guy? Because he seems to have the skill set and the hands from in tight to be able to do some of the same things that JVR was able to do in that circumstance, whether he's willing to physically battle in there the same way, I don't know. But of the players they have, he seems to fit that role almost the, better than anyone else. Yeah, and I, I think he's, he's such a gifted player that you're, you know, you're almost hesitant maybe to put him in that role because of what he can do with open ice. Um, but if somebody needs to fill it, he's certainly someone that seems to make sense. Uh, quick hands, you know, he can, he can get the puck off his stick quickly and, and has the size to, to play in that area of the ice. Um, you want to go a little outside the box. I wonder if a guy like Josh Levo, and, you know, we'll have to see where he is in, in this organization in general, but, you know, he's got some of those same um, traits where maybe he could be an effective player in that role. So, I imagine there's going to be a degree of shuffling in the preseason and maybe even into the regular season before they really get it figured out because that's the one area for the Maple Leafs this season that I think that I know things are going to be very different and they just have to figure out what their best fit is on both units. Well, here's the odd thing about the power play you talk about. Mitch Marner, not a great shooter. Tyler Bozak, not a great shooter. Nazem Kadri, not a great shooter. Morgan Riley, not a great shooter. They had four of the five guys on that power play who I would say are below-average NHL shooters. 
in, t- in terms of just how good is your shot? Yeah, it's I, it's I, weird to me that that group was able to succeed to the degree they were when there's nobody, there's no Ovechkins there. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you look at you look at some power plays that you think kind of jump off the page. You've got Ovechkin, you've got Stamkos in Tampa Bay, uh, and Kucherov on the other side, for that matter. Um, you know, there, there's you know Tyler Sagan in Dallas. They they were the the second most effective unit of the most used five man units in the league. You know, Mark Scheifele in Winnipeg and Kessel, et cetera, in Pittsburgh. Um, you know, watching the goals that that five man unit scored last season. A lot came from Marner. Marner had great options on the right wall, and that, that really set the table for the, the success they were able to have. He can go down low to JVR for a quick play at the net. Um, he can go high slot to Nazem Kadri, who kind of a la uh, Daniel and Henrik Sedin, Marner and Kadri would team up for that high slot tip, which proved to be effective. And then there was Bozak back door on the other side, um, who would go down and drive that low post on the left side. So, you don't need to have great shots to succeed with the types of plays that they would draw up more often than not, um, which enabled them to be effective. But, you know, as we're talking about it, it's going to be a different setup this year, um, not having James Van Riemsdyk in that spot to, to create goals or at the very least odd man situations down low for rebounds. Um, you still have cadre that you can use in the high slot, but it will be different. So uh, a bit unusual, but... Like I said, they were the most effective five-man unit in the league. Or maybe it means structurally you have to change. Yeah. You have to change. I know most teams in the NHL seem to use that same umbrella power play, everybody using the one guy at the top and, and the, the V, if you want to call it that, uh, with, the, with the two wide guys and, and then two guys in front. Um, pretty much it's standard in, in copycat hockey now that everybody's using that same thing just as they're using the same breakout drop pass through the neutral zone. Um, but I really wonder, and, and I go back now to the meeting Austin Matthews had with the two meetings that Austin Matthews had with Mike Babcock, and I'm sure power play time came up, and I'm sure power play time where he ranks in the NHL came up. Can you work a power play and find a place for both Tavares and Matthews the way Pittsburgh does with Malkin and Crosby? Yeah, that's that's an interesting concept as well, right? And you know, John Tavares, he's 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 a guy that generates a ton from the slot in general, um, and he he can get in tight as well. Um, it's not like he's a guy that's stationed in front of the net, but he knows how to play in those areas, and, and so does Matthews. So, um, to your point, maybe it's less of having one guy who's stationary there the way that Van Riemsdyk was, because you know, off the top of my head, I think of Wayne Simmons, Anders Lee. Patrick Hornquist and JVR really the top guys at doing what they do in front of the net. So if you don't have that guy in Toronto, um, and obviously Austin Matthews, you know, a lot of what came out of Toronto and, and you're in the trenches every day, you have a better idea than I do, um, was he would like more ice time and he would like more power play ice time. And now John Tavares is in the mix. So, However they shuffle it, um, like I said, I think it's going to take a little a bit of massaging to figure out what works best. And having both those guys on the same unit, maybe not having the designated guy down low, but having them both as, as slot options could be something that could be effective for them. I would love to be in the meetings right now 
and just oh, hearing yeah. of what the preparations are and what the plans are, not just for... I, he's already kind of announced what his lines are for the top two, which is completely un-Babcock-like, by the way. You know, for him to do that is very unusual. But on the day of the Tavares signing... So why do you think he did that? I wonder, I, the same thing. I wonder if it was a message to Mitch Marner more than anything else. It's, we're doing, we're putting you in a great position. You go now have the summer. He talks a lot about summers and what they do in the summers and getting ready for the season. And Marner was their best player in the playoffs, and he was their best scorer in the second half of the season. And maybe it's, we're appreciating you now, and we're putting you with Tavares. So it's showtime, baby. That's, that's kind of the that was my first interpretation because it's not like Babcock to and the other thing about it that was really weird is he's he is the he's the president of the Zach Hyman fan club. Yeah. And so for him to take Zach Hyman off to off Austin Matthews line to me was a sign that Austin Matthews said, "Can you please take Zach Hyman off my line?" Because otherwise why do you make that move? And, and so I wasn't sure, you know, how that came to be. But I'm really curious to see structurally what he does with these, because it, it's riches that most coaches don't get very often. And they're both going to want power play time, and they're both going to want first power play time. And it's yeah. gonna, you know, and it's going to be interesting just to watch what Matthews can do and what Tavares can do, and possibly what they could do together at times. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the only caveat, I guess, in, in putting them on the same unit is you've got two, two left shots. Um, it, you know, going through this stuff, I was looking at the worst power play unit of the most used in the NHL, and it was in St. Louis. They put their five highest scoring players on the same unit. Seems like a smart idea. All four of the forwards they used were left shots. And the amount of broken plays and the lack of one-timer options, it was a battle for them. And, and so you got to be, you got to be cognizant of that. But if, you know, I, I wonder if having Tavares and Matthews kind of play the same role on the power play on different units, but splitting the time might be an option. Less of a 90-second, 30-second, and more of a you know minute each and, and alternate who goes out first. But, you know, it, it, is this year ever going to be about managing egos and, and, and all, all, of the, um, all the other stuff that comes with coaching other than the tactics for Mike Babcock? There's... Uh, this is a special blend with having two, two guys down the middle who are that good and that competitive. So much talk about the Leafs' defense and whether it's good enough and, and all the things that go along with it. And we saw that Pittsburgh team win two years ago without Chris Letang in a really ordinary six-man unit. Um, one of the things, and no one talks about this very much, but I'm of the belief that one of the things the Leafs don't have is a big shot from the blue line. And you saw it in the playoffs uh, of how much it helped the Washington Capitals. And you saw it, in, in, even in the Leaf series, how much it helped the Boston Bruins. Um, I think sometimes the Leafs suffer, not from having the weak defense that we all talk about, but from not having a guy from the point that can really blast it. Yeah, um, I, I would agree with you. I don't think they have a, a big shot defenseman on their team. Um, you know, the, the odds of scoring a goal from, from that range are, are pretty limited. Um, now, again, obviously, you got a big shot like that. You can create rebounds, uh, make deflections more difficult for goaltenders, etc. cetera. Um, I, I don't know that having a big shot on their blue line is – this team's going to generate so much offense anyways. Um, and they create a lot in transition as well. You know, I, I look at the Leafs last year and – 
and they they attempted more stretch passes than any team in the league by a good number. Um, they also had the second worst completion rate on these stretch passes of any team in the league. So, you know, to use a, a baseball analogy, they swing for the fences. They hit a lot of home runs, but they strike out a lot too. So, um, you know, they like to create a lot in transition. They generate a lot of odd man rushes, uh, a lot of scoring chances off the rush. They move the puck up. Uh, when they're exiting the zone, they like to go for these neutral zone stretch passes. Um, and, and they've got, you know, I think Travis Dermott's a guy on their team who showed in, again, limited time and, and pretty sheltered minutes that he can do a lot of things really well for the Maple Leafs. The problem is the two guys ahead of him on the depth chart on the left side is how do you get Dermott more minutes? You give Gardner less minutes. I wouldn't be opposed to that. You know, and, and you talk about the stretch passes. Jake Gardner is the guy who led the entire league in stretch pass attempts. And there was 169 guys in the league that attempted at least 100 stretch passes. Jake Gardner in completion rate ranked 166. And we really saw that come to be in Game 7 against Boston where he attempted the second highest number of stretch passes in a game of any player all year, regular season or playoffs. And it was the 6-4 goal, the one that essentially put it away for the Bruins that came off uh, a failed pass into the neutral zone that went back the other way for a goal. So Travis Dermott, he was top 25, I believe, top 30 in the league in completing stretch passes. So, you know, it's it's one facet of the game and certainly not enough to say, well, you should play more than another guy when you're talking about a defenseman. But these are the things I think the Maple Leafs need to look at really seriously if you're going to rely so much on something and you're going to have the identity of your breakout be this thing, well, who are the guys that can put you in the best position to succeed? That's one area where I think you can absolutely argue for Dermott to get more minutes over Gardner. And then, of course, there's you know so many other facets of being a defenseman that you can get into. But I think Dermott should be given equal opportunity to push Gardner for ice time, no question. So this is where I think Babcock becomes fascinating as a watch this season as it, as it comes And I think Kyle Dubas, in his first year as general manager, uh, known for his, you know, analytics background, as well as everything else he now does. Um, So I'm wondering if someone like him will change some of the approaches that the Leafs take. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the the Maple Leafs, they have their own analytics staff there, and, and, you know, they have... They have resources beyond what any team in the National Hockey League has. So um, I'm sure they have all the information they need to, to make the kind of decisions they want to make. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't be shocked to see Dermott get an elevated role if he continues to play the way that he did. He skates the puck really well and he moves it with a stick really well. Um, I wonder about the right side and, you know, what are your thoughts on whether or not the right side strong enough to compete with the big boys in the East? Well, I th- I, I'm of the belief that I'm not a big left-right guy, to be perfectly honest. I go back to some of the greatest pairs in NHL history were right-right, left-left. So I think sometimes it, it comes down to, you know, not, not which way you shoot, but how you play. I, I'm, mm-hmm. o- I'm okay with Hainsey. I think I can live very nicely with Hainsey. I'm okay. I just think there, there are some areas there. And the guy who actually impressed me in the playoffs in the American Hockey League playoffs, and I was surprised by this because he didn't impress me much when he was with the Leafs, was Callie Rosen. Mm-hmm. And he's a guy I think is going to be interesting to see where he emerges because there's a spot 
there's sort of a question mark spot left. Who is the Leafs' sixth defenseman? Like, I don't know if anybody knows who that is right now. Or, or fifth, depending on how the order works out. But I think he's a guy who might be, him and Justin Hole might be in the leading candidates to emerge on this team next year. Yeah, I, I like Rosen. Uh, it, you know, last year I worked uh, as an analyst in the radio broadcast for the Laval Rocket and, and got to see the Marlies, I think, three times uh, live in addition to watching some, some video. Um, you know, Timothy Lilligren, great skill set, not ready for the NHL. Um, but I don't think the Leafs are, are you know, concerned with pushing him into a role he's not ready for. Um, but Rosen, you know, I'd agree with you. He's a guy that stood out as, as you know, somebody that I took more notice of than I had in the past. And, and I think I have to imagine, I guess, five spots are, are locked up on, on the blue line for the most part. And then it's that sixth spot, like you say, that, you know, nobody is definitely nobody's taken it. Um, it's not set in stone. So, again, you know, so many good options for the Maple Leafs and uh, not a ton of weaknesses. And you talk about just being ready for, for October to start in the season to get going. You know, I, I lived in Toronto for 12 years until a year ago when I've since moved to Montreal. But I can't imagine Leaf Nation, you know, what everybody's going through right now just waiting for the season to start. So one last question before letting you go, because I'm always interested in in what the eye sees and what the stats see and whether they're the same thing. Nikita Zaitsev had a terrible year for the Leafs. Um, Mike Babcock and some of the Leaf management people were saying, we view him differently than you view him. Uh, What do you see or what have you seen statistically from him? Well... I think the eye test and the numbers test will essentially say the same thing as he, he didn't have a very good year. Um, and it's, it's a little bit difficult to get a grasp on who this guy is. Cause we've certainly seen him some, uh, him play some better hockey, but uh, off the top of my head, just looking at, you know, what, what he was able to do, um, you know, somewhat effectively last year, uh, kind of more of a defensive defenseman role. He, he, he can play a little bit physical, but he, he's not a great skater. He didn't move the puck um, really in, in any rate um, with his stick or with his skating uh, at any high rate. Uh, his turnover rates were, you know, so this is just measuring how often a player uh, loses possession of the puck based on how often he has, how many times he has the puck on his stick. His turnover rates were not good, um, not good in the neutral zone, not good in the defensive zone. Um, so I, I, I my hunch is that he's kind of something in between what we've seen from, from last year and, the, and before that. Uh, but the numbers did not suggest that, you know, he had a, a particularly good year and, and, and the eye test failed. The, the numbers suggested that he didn't have a very good year either. Well, Mike, thanks for doing this. And I presume like all of us here in Toronto, you're looking forward to the start of the season in October. Of course. Thanks a lot, Steve. Pleasure talking to you. Mike Kelly, NHL statistical analyst and a guy who breaks down the games in ways that we don't necessarily see or hear about. Uh, come back. We're going to talk a little bit more Blue Jay, a little bit more baseball here on Toronto Today. Into the final segment here on Toronto Today. Steve Simmons of the Toronto Sun in for your listening pleasure or otherwise, frankly. Some people like me. Some people Finish the sentence. You can. I'm going to play general manager here. I'm going to put on my Ross Atkins, Mark Shapiro hat. I don't really have one, but I'm going to put one on anyhow. I'm going to look at this Blue Jays roster right now and what they have in the minors 
and try and look at what next season might look at, might look at in some way. And who from this team would you even want back? And you, you start, I'm going to start behind the plate because Russell Martin's contractually um, aligned to the Jays for one more season at $20 million. So he's not going anywhere unless somehow the Jays can pay some of that money and, and find another place for him. He's close to the finish line. Uh, whether you'd want him around to tutor people or to show them the way, that's a, you know that's a question that you'd have to answer. But you'd want Jansen up from AAA, who's had an all-star season in Buffalo. And maybe you pair him with Martin. And if you don't pair him with Martin, maybe you pair him with Luke Maley. And it gives you a chance to use two catchers in that situation, and you find out whether the one that you hope for or the one that you're going to trust can play. I'm okay with Justin Smoke at first base. And okay is about as far as I'll go with it. He is a very good defensive first baseman. He is, as, as Rich Griffin pointed out in, in, in the first hour of the show, um, he has saved the Jays a pile of errors this year from a really erratic infield. And, uh, and so he is good that way. Is he the power hitter we thought he was last year in, in sort of his breakout season? Hasn't come to that, although hit a big home run last night to, to tie the game. Uh, good player. Is he elite? No. Uh, is he what you'd really want in your first baseman? Not necessarily from, from the hitting perspective. But you look around and you see who's playing. Like the Red Sox have this mega team, and they've got Mitch Moreland you know, playing first base. And, and that's all. You know, if, if I have a choice between Mitch Moreland and Justin Smoke, odds are I'm taking Justin Smoke. Second base is another asterisk. And this is the problem with the Jays lineup here is it's asterisk and asterisk and more asterisks as, as you look around. Devin Travis, since coming back from the DL or coming back from, from Buffalo, has been pretty good offensively. I think he's hitting in the, in the 280 range. You know, he's, he's been hitting the ball hard. He's been back sort of slashing the line drives the opposite field, which is what he does best. You know, is he a great defensive second baseman? No. Is he a good defensive second baseman? No. Is he an adequate defensive second baseman? Probably. So you look at him, and he's stopgap for me right now. He's in that, well, you can put him there, and you can hope, and you, and you go from there, but he's no sure thing. Shortstop becomes interesting for next season for two reasons. One... Troy Tulowitzki is contractually aligned to the Jays for, for I believe, the next two seasons. Um, so you have $20 million at least into him next year. And I think they can get out of the year after with some kind of buyout. If he's healthy enough to play, my suspicion is he'll play. But if he's, if he's, not, and if he's healthy enough to play, what's he going to play? 120 games, maybe? Even in his bigger years in Colorado, he was always missing 20 games or so a year. So you expect at this stage of his career, with all the injuries he's had, he'll always be in, in that form. Can he get back to being a quality defender, which he was two years ago? Last year he wasn't. Um, for some reason last year he couldn't make throws. Uh, from, a, from an entire career of being a great thrower, suddenly he couldn't make throws 
last summer. So we don't know what he is. We don't know right now what Lords Guriel Jr. is. I mean, it's obvious or seemingly obvious that he can hit. What's not so obvious is where does he play? Does he become your super utility, a little bit here, a little bit there guy? Does he, can he be a major league shortstop? If he can't be a major league shortstop, how far away is Bo Bichette, who scouts, the scouts that I trust, tell me will be an adequate defensive major league shortstop and a better than adequate major league hitter? You know, Bo Bichette's game is offense. It's not defense necessarily. Vladdy Guerrero, when he gets here, his game is offense at third base. Defensively, although he made a great play for Buffalo last night, it's not really that way either. Um, and, and so you've got some issues here. And one thing we've learned from the Shapiro-Atkins view of the world, while they don't say much about it for publication, is that they're not obsessed with defense. I, I grew up, and my, my dad was a baseball crazy nut. He loved the game. He believed in the game. He taught the game. He coached it. He took me to games. He taught me to score. All the things that, you know, our relationship in many ways was built around baseball and football. That's what we talked about. That's what we did together. He talked all the time about pitching and defense. If you've got pitching and defense, you can always compete. And what has been noticeable to me in so many of the deals that Shapiro and Atkins have made since coming here is they don't care nearly as much about defense as I care about defense. And they don't believe in defense nearly as much as I believe in defense. And that's why they go and get a Teoscar Hernandez. And that's why they get a Solarte. And that's why they get a Diaz. All those guys are reasonable hitters and less than reasonable fielders. And, and so you have next year the question at third base, what do you do with Donaldson? Can you, is there any chance he can come back this year? In, in enough time for you to get something in a deal for him, would you then, if not, offer him a qualifying offer, which he may turn down because, frankly, if I'm making the qualifying offer, I'm being clear here. Josh, Vladdy Guerrero is going to play third from the day he comes up to the rest of the season. And Justin Smoke we need at first because our defense isn't that good and we need his glove there. So you're going to have to DH... And the problem with DHing or maybe playing left field is, is where do you put T. Oscar Hernandez? And Kendris Morales is under contract for another year. Another guy who can't play in the field, really, to speak of. And, you know, if they could ever find a way to, to move his contract and get him out of here, you know, I'd, I'd find... One thing I would really try and do is get a, find a way to move Morales or buy him out or DFA him or do whatever it is you need to do because then you can move to Oscar Hernandez to DH full time, and then you get by doing that you get Teoscar Hernandez's glove and arm out of left or right field, mostly left field in, in in the second half of this year, because frankly he's a terrible outfielder and he's a somewhat clueless defender. So you got a guy who has a big major league bat and really wants to, like last night he wanted to win that game in in, in the bottom of the ninth. He tried to win it with a home run, and you could see he was trying. It, it didn't happen for him. But he was working it that way. But you look, you go through. Well, Kevin Pollard, do you, do you want him back? I don't know. Can Grichik play every day? I don't know. Who's in left field? I don't know. There's a whole lot of I don't know here. 
And that's what makes the rest of this season the confounding part of the offseason and, you know, not even the manager part of all this, just the future of the Blue Jays. Who are they? What are they? And what are they going to be? That's all for me for today. Thanks to the guys behind the glass. Been a hoot being here for two days. The Scott MacArthur Show is up next. Andy McNamara in for him. I'm Steve Simmons, and this is Toronto Today.